Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the US, the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi guys, today we're speaking with Annabelle Chauncey, the world-changing founder and CEO of the School of Life nonprofit in Uganda. In this episode, Annabelle will talk about how she transformed from a postgraduate backpacker in Africa to a nonprofit founder at 21 and global educator. She'll also discuss how she's been able to build and run three primary, secondary, and vocational schools in rural Uganda to date as well as provide clean drinking water, electricity, community outreach, and medical treatment to its surrounding communities. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Annabelle. How are you today? Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you? Oh, we're so good, too. <laughs> and where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from, from Sydney in Australia. Beautiful. Yeah, and you're actually Annabelle Chauncey OAM, which is an order of Australia, <laughs> which is actually, I think, like, sort of really, obviously, a prestigious title to have. Um, I think you're the first OAM that we've actually had on the podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I probably sound better than I am in real life. <laughs> oh, don't we all think that about ourselves, though? It's like women are so impressive, and I think we all just kind of talk ourselves down. We're like, what? No, not me. <laughs> yes, really. Yeah, we'd love to find out more about um, how you um, landed in Order of Australia, but um, along the way, there's your really incredible story and the School for Life Foundation. But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your like childhood where you where you grew up and how you started your career yeah sure of course um I'm actually a country girl I grew up on a sheep and cattle farm about an hour and a half southwest of Sydney Mm. um so grew up with wide open spaces 2,000 acres uh, of land wow on a sheep and cattle property yeah so um you know I guess what I describe to be a really wild and free country upbringing Uh, I've got two big brothers who used to push me around a bit and tell me what to do Mm. um and yeah just really really incredible um I guess problem solving through life skills type of background where I was sort of riding horses and you know making cubby houses in the trees and it was very outdoorsy and there was lots of you know parts of dad's business in the farm that us kids were involved with so I got a really strong exposure to I guess that resilience that comes with living on a farm Mm -hmm. uh, where there's so much that's reliant and dependent on the weather and, you know, we've seen here in Australia we've gone from drought to bushfires and then floods and, you know, there's a lot there in terms of mental strength and courage that you learn from watching your own parents as they navigate what is quite a difficult you know, country to live in from a weather perspective, but also trying to make a profit from the land is an easy thing to do. So Mm. I guess, yeah, so part of that shaped the um, ability to sort of get up when the going gets tough and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, and then I went to I went to a tiny primary school. I had four kids in my year, twenty six <laughs> kids in my whole That's school. So cute. Oh my gosh! Um, which is hilarious. And guess who was my teacher? Uh, my mom. <laughs> well, <laughs> so you can't really a, get you can't really mess around in school then, can you? <laughs> totally, totally. It's like basically a you know a form of of a, a bit of a bigger homeschooling, but. Um, Oh, look, I, I was so lucky to have mum as my teacher. She's a passionate educator. And so I suppose from her, I learned, you know, I learned the power and the beauty of an education and, and you know, just how important it is to use your education to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so when I was heading off from primary school, I went to another quite small school. Uh, it had, at my high school had just 300 girls and I was a boarder there, a weekly boarder. So I managed to have sort of the best of both worlds. I would spend Monday to Friday at school and then I'd go home and spend time on the farm on the weekends with mum and dad, which is great. And, I mean, the beautiful thing about the high school that I went to was its ethos. Um, Its motto was in love, serve one another. And it was very much a school that was founded on the value of giving back and community service. So, yeah, so you weren't just sort of measured on your academic performance. You were measured on what you contribute and how you contribute to make a difference to the lives of other people around you, whether that's, you know, volunteering through doing things like, you know, working in nursing homes or going and assisting with meals on wheels delivery or, you know, doing things like council cleanup, helping with, um, you know, cleaning up around um, to ensure that our local area, you know, doesn't have trash everywhere and all that sort of thing. So we were really measured um by that and, and it was ingrained in us just how valuable it is to help other people and really when you give you get so much back in return yeah. so yeah so I guess that was sort of the formula um, behind where I've gotten to today I suppose from a values and an experience perspective the other incredible role model I had in my life was um, my grandmother was diagnosed with polio when she was just eight years old and she was told she'd never walk again. She spent a year in hospital Mm. and she was told she'd never ride horses, which was her passion. She'd never be able to do anything like have children. And she just went on to break and defy all the odds. She Mm. was incredibly resilient and a big believer in the power of mindset and not allowing anybody to tell you what you can't do because, you you know, you simply can do what you've set your mind to. So I think also just having my grandmother, you know, be such a strong role model and so courageous, she just really sort of smashed through all the things that she was told she'd never do and she yeah. was just so brave and, and you know, had two children, rode horses, got a job, walked again, Amazing. you know, all of the things she was told she couldn't do. And I think just having people like that in your life and particularly in your family is such an inspiration. Yeah, what an incredible woman. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's a matriarch. We've, very sadly, she passed um, last year, which was horrible. But, mm. you know, she had the most well-lived life. She was 94 years old. Oh, and, wow. You know, just, yeah. I mean, even, you know, she, in her childhood, she was told she'd never live beyond 40. So, yeah. wow. You know, yeah, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So your formative years were really, really kind of forming this um like community values and how Mm -hmm. you can empower each other and how you all are there together. Was it a shock for you then going to university in Sydney and suddenly being (laughs) in this big city and 6.5 million people (laughs) yeah I know it's so funny that you say that I don't know if you've read my story but yes it was the most unbelievable shock um 
if I'm really frank, which I always am, um, the wheels <laughs> fell off a bit for me. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I got the marks to do arts law at Sydney Uni, which was sort of, I guess, that degree that everybody, I suppose it's a bit of a door opener and this University of Sydney is such a prestigious university and it's sort of seen as this sandstone degree and I, I got the marks and so I went off to study at Sydney Uni and you know, I did what I thought I should should be doing, I suppose. I, I did what I thought I should do in order to open as many doors and opportunities for myself as I possibly could. But when I got to Sydney, you know, I'm a small town country girl who went to very small schools and I was, you know, a bit of a big fish in a small pond. And mm. I went into this environment where I was a number on a piece of paper and mm you know, virtually insignificant. So I think that was tough for me. You know, I, I know that was tough for me. I, I suffered a lot of anxiety and a little bit of almost, you know, displacement anxiety because I just simply didn't know how I could contribute anymore, wasn't finding joy and passion in what I was studying. I was finding law very formulaic and archaic. Mm. Um, I wasn't able, I suppose, to contribute to a community in the way that I'd been used to doing and so it took me a little while there to really find my feet and to be able to work out how I was actually going to use my law degree to make a difference and mm-hmm. in a way that was going to really make my heart sing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's also something like a lot of people go through where you kind of think you have to have your, your whole life mapped out and then when it actually comes down to it, suddenly yeah. you just don't know what you want to be doing. So, yeah, and, yeah, and, you know, sometimes you think that you're you're on the path that you should be on and it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. And, you know, and for a 17-year-old, you know, fresh out of tiny country town communities to be in the big smoke in Sydney with, you know, a, a few friends. I didn't go completely not knowing anybody, but mm-hmm. having to basically reestablish a network and find my feet and also just get used to the fact that you didn't have the same level of support and community as what I'd been used to having. That was really challenging for me. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So what happened then? Mm. So you, you graduated, you, you had a, a law degree then? So what happened? Well, I I actually, I, I spent the first three years, I completed my arts, the arts component of my degree. Yeah. And I actually decided then, I, I'd been sort of <laughs> negotiating with my parents to try to not finish the law. Um, I just, I really struggled with it. And, and you know, the other part of it that was really challenging for me was that I, I kind of couldn't see how I was going to be able to use the theory and the knowledge that I was learning to be able to go into a career. I just, I was working as a paralegal a mm. couple of days a week to get some experience, which was so helpful. Um, but it wasn't really making me tick. It wasn't really where I felt I was going to be when mm. I finished the degree. So yeah. what I did was I decided to take six months off, yeah, put my uni studies on hold and do basically that sort of gap year that everybody else does when they leave school. <laughs> and um, so I, I saved up some money and I signed up to volunteer to teach English to children in Kenya. Mm. And it was sort of, you know, so far removed from my life in Australia and I knew that I would be able to be giving back and I'd be able to do something that was meaningful to me and just to have a chance to sort of take that break that I haven't had between school and university. Mm. So 
I jumped on a plane, much to mum and dad's dismay, because it was, you know, terrifying to have their little girl kind of jump on a plane and go to Africa. Um, but, you know, that that's all part of it. And I guess it's sort of like your rite of passage when you're that age to go off and do something, do a bit of travel or explore the world. Yeah. And um, when I got there, I'd been in Kenya for six weeks and Kenya actually erupted into civil war. It was an election year. Wow. Um, I know, so it was highly dramatic, as you can imagine. So I was evacuated across the border to a little country called Uganda Mm -hmm. uh, at 3 a.m. in a convoy of armed cars and, you know, of course, you know, calling mum and dad, hey, mum, dad, just being evacuated (laughs) from Kenya. Yeah, don't Um, freak out, being evacuated. (laughs) It's all right. I'm going to be all right. They're like, come home now. I'm like, no, 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 I'm still having fun. Um, and uh, so went, once all that drama was over, I, I arrived in Uganda and knew very little about this country. It's a very small country in the east of Africa. It's actually the same size as Australia's state of Victoria. Huh. Um, heavily populated, though. It's got a population of 43 million people. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, and 50% of those are aged under 14 years. Huh. So really densely populated um, but full of the most incredible people who literally would give you the shirt off their back. You know, the value of community and family over there is so strong. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I didn't have anything that I could really do there because my the organisation that I decided to volunteer with didn't have an operation there. So I just sort of rolled my sleeves up and had a look around Mm. and started to volunteer in various different projects. So a range of different things from kind of um, working in schools to doing some community medical clinics to kind of working in orphanages where I was helping out just with the day-to-day operations of it. Mm -hmm. And I guess for me what resonated the most was the value of education and the desire that children had to be educated. Yeah, You know, you would be in this classroom, which would be a mud hut, and you'd have children walking between five and ten kilometres every morning on an empty stomach with no shoes on their feet to get to this mud hut and bright-faced, excited to be there. And, you know, I just thought, wow, isn't it incredible that where you're born can have such an impact on the life and opportunities that you're going to have? Right. And, you know, I'm so lucky to have been born into a place like Australia where I didn't want for for an education. Yeah, you kind Um, of gained for an education. It was kind of like, oh, do I have to? Exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah, we were talking about this in the office today because a lot of our team's um, kids have gone back to school today and, you know, the drag of sending your kids back to school. <laughs> and you know, got this absolute desire, a burning desire by the children to be educated. And I suppose for me that was very moving, but also when I really reflected on the power of education, it just feels to me so sustainable. You know, mm-hmm. even a year of education is is a gift that can't be taken away. And, you know, the children want it. So you're not fighting against, you know, a car- an undercurrent of people not wanting go- to go to school. So yeah. it was sort of on that trip really that I started thinking, wow, okay, well, it's this huge education issue. But equally I'm studying law, you know, that gives me a very good footing to be able to look at starting a company or an NGO to be able to do something about the problem. Mm-hmm. And um, during my time in Kenya and Uganda, I met a dear friend of mine, David Everett. Um, And when we both came home to Australia, we were resolved to do something to make a difference. And it was from there that we decided to start School for Life with a vision 
to educating poverty out of existence and to be able to provide quality education in rural areas where there isn't any other opportunity for students. So it was just born out of, I guess, passion, naivety, but also just seeing a huge problem and a huge need and wanting to do something about it. Because how old were you at this point? I was 21. Wow. Um, well, I, was, I was 20 on the trip. I, know. <laughs> I think that I actually think that really worked in my favour, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, there's something really beautiful about having no idea about the challenges and obstacles yeah. that you're going to face. Yeah. Um, na- naivety can be a really powerful tool, and you know, you you don't know what you don't know, and therefore you think it's going to be easy. And yeah. You know, I thought, like I was drawing out a business plan, how hard can it be to build some schools and, you know, <laughs> educate some kids and, and help, you know, do something positive for the world. And it was only when I started sort of pitching to anybody who would listen basically that I recognised that, you know, it was a pretty ambitious thing to be pitching construction, well, firstly to purchase land, then to construct schools, then to run them in a foreign country, Mm. in a developing nation um, at the age of 21. So (laughs) it was all, (laughs) it was all sort of, you know, at the time I was like, why does everybody think this is a big deal? And now I'm kind of like, yeah, I get it. Like I get why people, you know, gave us the runaround when we would go and ask for funding or support because, it is a big thing, you know, it is a big thing to ask people to support an ambition that's quite out of the ordinary. Right. And then how, you know, obviously this might sound like a silly question, but it's a not-for-profit <laughs> organisation. Yes. So what is it that people who invest in it get get back, like, from the fact that they've invested in, in yeah, the charity? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question because at the end of the day, it's a social return on investment. It's yeah. it's nothing more than that. It's it's a feel-good, it's a story, it's the fact that they've been a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I pride myself on the community that's been built around School for Life. But mm-hmm. as you say, I mean, really, other than a tax receipt and, you know, a report back on the impact that we've created with the support of our very generous donors, there really isn't anything that I can give mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's goodwill and it's an incredible thing to be a part of when you start tapping into that and to just recognise the generosity that's right underneath our noses. There are just so many people who are so generous and Mm -hmm. it's really very moving when you start to tell a story and people become a part of that story and want to be a part of your journey and get behind you and say, you know what, yeah, I believe in you to do this. And, you know, there's been different phases of that journey from, you know, sort of selling literally a render that was designed by an architect on a piece of paper in front of um, about 600 people at a ball in Sydney, which was sort of the very first huge capital raise that we did and raising $100,000 from a room full of people that simply just believed in our vision Mm. to kind of now having a proven track record and, and to be starting to really sort of pitch for millions of dollars, which is very different to how it started but either way you know you've always got that take a deep breath moment where you think wow okay you know it doesn't get easier um it Mm. gets scary and it's challenging um but you what you can always bank on is the generosity of people around you and just how incredibly supportive the Australian community is that's amazing Hmm. wow Wow. So, so you, I love this phrase that you use. It's educate poverty out of ex- existence. Um, Absolutely. What do you mean by that? How did you put that into action? 
and how is it going now? Yeah, look, I mean, I like aspiration. I think you've got to sort of shoot for the stars. And, you know, as we know and recognise, extreme poverty is a huge global issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've got to fight for change and we've got to fight to take the right steps forward to create positive action. So in educating poverty out of existence, our deep belief is that, as I mentioned earlier, Education is a gift that can't be taken away and it's actually transformational and it replicates itself. So if you take, for example, one woman and you provide one woman or one girl with an access to education, she goes on to have less children. She goes on to earn more income for herself, Hmm. um, to make decisions to educate her own family. And that is catalytic. You know, it it increases over time. So I see education as a springboard you give somebody the tools and the resources that they need to be successful for themselves and that continues to grow generationally. Yeah. So really it's about creating the next generation of leaders and ensuring that they're empowered to be able to go on and make their own choices through education. Yeah, absolutely. So what exactly, could you explain to us exactly what um, the School of Life provides? Yeah, sure. So it's quite a holistic product. Mm -hmm. Our real vision is to provide quality education, Mm -hmm. but we work in very underprivileged environments. So as you can imagine, when the children come to school, when they first start with us, they don't have shoes on their feet. Mm. Many of them have never done up buttons on a shirt because they've never owned a shirt before. Many of them are falling asleep on their desks because of malnourishment. Many are missing periods of school because they've never been to healthcare centres. So providing quality education is really not just about the teachers and the pens and the pencils and the books. Providing quality education is providing the infrastructure and the ecosystem around education Mm. to ensure that we can support every part of that journey. So it's providing access to uniforms, to health clinics to support the health of the students, to three nutritious meals a day so that the kids grow and can concentrate, to counselling services so that they can overcome any challenges that they might be facing at home Mm. from domestic abuse or we've got a lot of issues with alcoholism in our communities. Mm -hmm. It's providing a safe space for our children to grow and learn Mm -hmm. and, of course, be able to provide them with opportunities outside of the classroom. So things like extracurricular activities that help grow and develop their confidence, their problem-solving ability, their critical and creative thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, excursions outside of the village, access to IT and computer literacy, access to skills that they will be able to use to become employable. Mm -hmm. So it's really for us, as I mentioned, it's an ecosystem Um, and one that touches on various different facets of the child's life. And not just the child, the parents as well, the family, access to clean drinking water for the whole community, health services to ensure that the baseline of health is taken care of, access to microfinancing and um, working together with the community around mindset shift, you know, making sure that girls are treated equally, making sure that women aren't beaten up, making sure that um, parents know how to feed their children well, giving access to information around reproductive and sexual health. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, it's it's really, I suppose, it's it's taking, at its core, it's education, but um, it's taking away the obstacles and the barriers that get in the way of children achieving access to a quality education. Yeah, that's the thing that it's because, you know, being from the U.S., there are a lot of children living in poverty in the U.S. And yeah. I think that's the it's so um, 
There's so many people and organizations that want to focus on helping um, schools get better, and that's great. Um, But, like, if children don't have all of that infrastructure that they need, like, if they have a troubled home life, it doesn't matter if they've got brand new books (laughs) or whatever because they're not going to be able to learn, you know, or Mm -hmm. if they're they're hungry, they can't learn. So it's just, it's interesting that you've taken such a holistic approach. How good is that? I mean. Yeah, look, I mean, to be honest, it's been organic as well so when the original business plan was put in place it was essentially to build the schools Mm -hmm. but then what you recognize quickly and I mean I'm talking kind of first and second day of opening a school you know Mm -hmm. by this stage I think Dave and I are about 22 or 23 years old Um, and what we realized as well is that okay actually these kids don't have shoes so we're going to need to provide them these kids are falling asleep and then what would happen was we would look you know, we'd have to look and see if they still had their baby teeth to enroll them to see if they were sort of five or six years old. Mm -hmm. But then what we realized was that many of them were stunted because they were so malnourished. So as soon as we started feeding them, they'd shoot up. They're actually eight or nine years old, but they were just a lot smaller than what they should have been. So, you know, just the the sheer amount of learning um, and just eyes wide open, seeking to listen and understand um, yeah. and asking questions was just, it was such a critical part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel overwhelmed? Because you're quite young. I mean, I w- <laughs> I feel like I just got chills when you said that about mm-hmm. them being malnourished and, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, as I said to you, naivety and youth uh, is a real gift. And yeah. I can't say I ever felt the deep sense of overwhelm uh, at that age. I think it was just problems would pop up and we would find solutions for them. Um, The complexity of the business is far bigger now. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is your risk appetite starts to, I guess, become a little bit more conservative as you get older and you recognise you know, the challenges with decision-making and the repercussions of a decision made wrong. So I actually think in some ways as I've gotten older, that's when more of the overwhelm has come in than at the very beginning when I just kind of, you know, I just didn't have much to compare it to. And I suppose there weren't as many people relying on me. You know, I've now got a team over there of 120. I've got... um, 1400 children um here in Australia we've got seven staff it's there's a lot more to lose than there was in the early days when we were volunteer uni kids trying to do something great for the world and there wasn't other than our reputation which at the time was you know not that good like as in not bad but just there was no reputation to lose either so yeah 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 so now I suppose yeah there are times when there is a sense of overwhelm and you you do think, wow, are we going to be able to keep going? And of course, COVID was one of those times and, you know, you have, you're going along smoothly and then the mat sort of gets pulled out from under you and you have to work out how you're going to adapt and move forward. Right. So what, what does it look like now for um, School for Life? Do you have a number of different schools and, and how, how were they affected with COVID? Yeah, good question. I mean, we run three schools now. So we've got two primary schools that filter their graduates into one larger high school. 
So across the schools in 2021, we'll have 1,430 students and they go to school from preschool or early childhood development. So, you know, three and four years, right up to the Australian equivalent of year nine or what we describe in Uganda, or it's year 10 now, as senior four. Um, So quite a wide range of ages. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you know, the complexity of running a high school is much different to the complexity of running a primary school. So, yeah, as I mentioned, we've got, you know, 120 staff, many of whom are teachers, but equally we've got a management team, um, a construction team because we're still in a capital growth phase Mm -hmm. and a whole range of different support staff, um, anything from cooks, cleaners, maintenance, nurses, counsellors, social workers. Um, all the support that we need to ensure that we really uplift the community around us. Mm -hmm. Um, So everything was running along smoothly until about the 20th of March 2020 when um, I received a panic call from my husband saying, I think you should come home. Um, I'm pretty sure the the whole world's just about to shut down. Um, Oh, my gosh. So you and you got here at the time. I was, yeah. Um, and I mean, look, I knew, I knew, obviously I'm not silly, I knew that um, things were getting pretty concerning, but um, it was also important to me that I was on the ground with the team to try and create a plan. Mm-hmm. So from that time, essentially Australia and Uganda went into lockdown, you know, not, not long after that. Um, the Ugandan schools were shut. Uh, the Australian kind of way of life changed dramatically as everybody moved to home-based work. Plus, mm. on top of that, you know, so much business was affected. Mm. And so borders shut. I was, yeah, and borders shut. So I didn't have to quarantine in a hotel. I was able. I got in earlier, and I was able to quarantine at home. But during that sort of fourteen-day quarantine period, it was basically an analysis of how we were going to ensure that we could protect the business. Yeah. Um, and that was both from an operational perspective in Uganda and from a fundraising and support perspective here in Sydney. So what what I did was basically, um, you know, just took stock of where we were. Um, I was looking down the barrel of about a million dollar loss um, for the rest of the financial year in Australia, which equates to about 40% of our budget mm. because... Oh yeah, so we do a big black tie event that raises half a million dollars, plus we do immersion trips to Uganda, mm. which raise, you know, sort of 250000 plus there was a whole range of different activities planned that, of course, couldn't go ahead. Yeah. Then on top of that, you've got, you know, a number of people cancelling on donations because their businesses have been impacted or their lives have been significantly changed. Mm. And then in Uganda, um, I had the challenge of how do you adapt learning? in an environment where children are living in mud huts and they don't have access to electricity, running water, you can't just switch to an online learning, you know, framework. Um, Parents are illiterate. They can't teach their children how to read and write because they can't read and write for themselves. So how are we going to be able to support the children through this pandemic, Um, both physically in their health and well-being, but also academically through providing education and ensuring that they don't get left behind during this pandemic. So concurrently managing two quite different challenges, but equally um, recognising that we're, we're very resilient and we will get through. So, yes, yeah, so we've made a lot of changes really quickly, um, reconverted our entire team 
in Uganda to um, delivering weekly take-home learning materials via motorbikes to each student's home. Oh, my gosh. Then following them up with phone calls to help them with their homework. Um, Then doing small group-based sessions on hand washing, providing access to take-home food and hygiene kits for each and every student plus their family. Wow. Making sure that we'd set up you know, 48 hand washing stations in every village that surrounded our schools, mm-hmm. ensuring that our health clinics were open so that we could provide access to medical care as required for the communities. And I guess the biggest promise that I wanted to deliver on was not standing down any of my Ugandan team. Yeah, It just takes so much to build a team like that. And, you know, you, there's nothing greater than loyalty that you can give and show your, your team in a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. So it was critical to us that we could stand with our team and know that they weren't going to be stood down. Um, they are the breadwinners for their families and it was critical that we were able to support them. So mm-hmm. lots of change um, in Australia coming up with new ideas to fundraise to try and fill that million-dollar hole. Um, with the ball cancellation, we rolled into an emergency appeal which helped us raise about three or $400,000 and then basically just talking to our donors, really communicating very openly and um, managed to see out the financial year without any gaps in the budget, which is incredible. That is um, incredible. So impressive. Yeah, and then the, the other thing that we were in the midst of doing was we were just we just finished the foundation work of a girls' boarding facility for 300 high school girls. So we had to stand down 80 of our construction workers, mm. and that was because we quite simply weren't allowed to build at the time. Yeah. So we then had to figure out whether or not we were going to be able to actually build the girls' boarding facilities. So what we did was we um, spent a couple of months regrouping and then we managed to continue on um, and we've managed to build that girls' boarding facility over the last six months and it'll open up in the next couple of months, which is amazing. So, yeah, look, it was it was yeah. awesome and I think, you know, you put it down to the loyalty of your team. They're so driven by purpose and so aligned to the vision and the goals that we've got. At school for life. Would you describe yourself as someone who can think quite calmly in in times of a crisis, or were you sort of like stressed and pulling your hair out through all this? Because you're you're relaying it with such composure, and like, I always feel like you would just make everything okay. Like the stuff. <laughs> I could come. She's like, well, then we did this, and then we did this, yeah. and I'm like, wait, hang yeah. on, I'm having trouble keeping track. <laughs> um, I've got an amazing CEO. I've got an amazing team here in Australia. They, you know, we we. We did it together. It was certainly not just me. Mm-hmm. Um, look, yes and no. I can see where I need to go. I've definitely got a lot of emotion um, and I try to kind of hold on to that. I think the biggest thing and the most important thing was to me, for me was to be really calm because if I wasn't, then the whole team was going to lose it. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to give them, I suppose, be that role model to show that we were going to get through this and yeah. there's no way I'm going to see our business go down. You know, everybody's put so much hard work into it and we've got a promise not only to the communities that we work in but also to our donors to be able to make this work. So just kept a really calm mind dealt with issues really methodically, um, start to finish, what was the most pressing, how were we going to work together, lots of communication, internal and external. And I think you can only be honest at the end of the day. You know, I think you, you've got to show some vulnerability. You know, we haven't been through this before, but we're going to get through it. And we might not know the way, but we're going to find a way and we're just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. 
that determination is mm-hmm. something I think every entrepreneur needs. Pandemic or no pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, look at, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you, so I just want to touch on something and then I want to give you props, um, like personal props for me. So the way that we got connected is that my um, fiance works for a company called Liverpool Partners, which is one of the donors to your program. And it's the first time that he's ever made a regular donation to an organization like this. And um, I know that he came home one day and he was talking about um, the a, a film that you'd shown. Yeah, um, Diana. Yeah, yeah, and he I he's not an emotional person. He really isn't. Um he doesn't yeah. like show emotion easily. But um this was it was educating the, you know, donors about um what was going on with young women and the dangers that they were facing trying to get to school. And he we had just discovered um right before this that we were having a daughter. Um, and he, thank you, but I've never seen him. He was so touched and he was emotional, um, after hearing the story and he felt so good about being able to contribute to an organization like this. So I just have to say, wow. I mean, you've made, thank you. it's not only the, you know, obviously the people whose lives you're changing, but the people who are able to help change those lives by donating yeah and that, that's exactly yeah that's what that's what I was sort of saying earlier is you know it's got this twofold effect you know you create a community in Uganda and you build that community but you are also building a community here in Australia around that community in Uganda and mm-hmm. you know I, I would hope that people get more than they give in terms of being able to feel that they're contributing to something far bigger than themselves or their own profit or their own, you know, sort of journey in life. It's, it's very fulfilling to be able to give back, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just so important. It's so important to know that you're doing something like that where you can in the world. So you're obviously not just being kind of recognized by us here but also by some like pretty massive awards like you won young young australian of the year you have an order of australia when when did these happen how did you feel about it and tell tell us like was that a surreal moment um yeah i mean like an intruder right you know you never um you never think that you're worthy of such recognition um i think i got my order of australia when i was Oh, 26, I think. And I still look at the honour roll on Australia Day and the June long weekend and just go, wow, okay. Um, I don't know how I fit in with all of these people. Um, You know, I've still got a long journey to walk and particularly at that time when I received the award, I, yeah, I, I guess I was like, oh, it's too early. I'm too young. I haven't done that much compared to everybody else that's in this room who's done heaps. And mm. yeah, you you do. You've got that sort of imposter syndrome where you you never quite feel. I suppose you don't necessarily take the time to reflect on how far you've come mm. on a regular basis. You you are busy sort of continuing to reset the goalposts and to push harder and further and you know, to ensure that you're dealing with whatever crisis you're dealing with or alternatively come up with the next strategy to be able to raise more funds to change more lives. So incredible, humbling, um, amazing experience that um, I'll never forget. And I guess, 
it's yeah it's um definitely not why you do it but it certainly helps to egg you on to do more because it is an incredible recognition and one that I'm incredibly grateful for Mm -hmm. well Mm. I have to disagree with you and say that I can totally see why you (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree with your decision (laughs) (laughs) that's good I don't have to give it back then there you go there you go. Uh, so, so how funny. can we? Uh, what? How can we get involved? How can we help? How can our listeners yeah. help um, with School for Life and be involved with? This yeah. Movement? So look, the best way is to jump onto our website. Our website is schoolforlife.org.au. You can do all sorts of different things. There's um, a range of different initiatives uh, that we run, from kind of sponsoring a child, so effectively providing access to education, clean water, healthcare, food, uniform, books, everything to a child in our programs. Every year, as I mentioned, we increase our student enrolment by at least 300 students. So there's always a gap that we're chasing in getting the children sponsored. Mm -hmm. So it's $52 a month to sponsor a child, which is, you know, basically a cup of coffee a day. Mm. Um, The other ways to get involved are are by doing, taking on one of our activities. We've got a whole range of different initiatives that we do throughout the year, coming to our Black Tie Ball in Sydney, um, challenging yourself to help to provide access to education for our girls. Um, and yeah, following us on Instagram and Facebook so that you can keep up with everything that that we're doing. Perfect. Beautiful. And where do we find you on Instagram? So it's at School for Life Foundation. Awesome. Beautiful. Connecting now. Well, thank you so much, thank Annabelle. You. Let's stay in touch. Thank you for and having me. Soon. It's been an absolute joy. Yeah. Amazing what you've done. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere, at any location around the globe. And we're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current US gender-based pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast will get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just use the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.